0: Please turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 2, 11 through 16. For there is no partiality with God. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are just before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law... Do instinctively the things of the law, these not having the law are a law to themselves, in that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness, and their thoughts alternate, alternately accusing or else defending them. On the day when, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. December 27, Last year, I preached this text. And I'll give you a a two minute synopsis of that and then uh, remind you of what I promised I would do in that sermon. Verse 11 says there's no partiality with God, and the rest of the text is a support for that because it looks like that's not true. And the reason it looks like it's not true is that in verse 6, Paul had said he's going to render to everyone according to their deeds. And yet, he only gives one people the book of the law where all the deeds are described and all the ways of dealings with God, the Jews. And so how can it be impartial if only one little people in the Near East have the book and all over the world people are going to get judged? How's that impartial? And he gives a two-stage answer. The first stage is, it isn't the having of the book. It's the doing of the book that will count at the judgment. Which doesn't help much because how can you know what to do if you don't have the book? And his second answer is you've all got the book. It's either in your hands or it's on your heart. And therefore everybody will be accountable. Everybody knows a measure of right and wrong. Everybody falls short of their own conscience. And this is a Supplement to chapter 1 verses 19 and 20 where everybody has the book of nature. So you got the book written on the heart, you got the book written in nature. If you don't have the book in your hand, you have enough and you'll be accountable on the last day and your own conscience is a testimony to that, either affirming or condemning you. Now that was the sermon, December 27, 1998. But I promised you that I would come back to the words at the end of verse 13, the doers of the law will be justified. And so I'm keeping my promise this morning, and that's what we're going to talk about. The doers of the law will be justified. Now this is heavy. This is a weighty, weighty issue. And nobody in this room, not a single person in this room feels the weight of that statement to the degree that you should. Not a person. Our culture and its influences in the church have unfitted us for such things. The 20th century is the century of the self. I think that's what it'll go down as in the books. The century of the self. It's also the bloodiest century in the history of the world. The cruelest, meanest, ugliest century in the history of the world. I'm reading a a life of Solzhenitsyn right now. And you talk about blood. You younger people, and really that's most of us because not many here can remember 1917, 18, 19, 20. But the blood that flowed. When the Bolsheviks moved, makes the Holocaust look small. We just don't know about it. It was a bloody century, but it was mainly the century of the self and the care of the self. And really, I guess I'm talking about the West here, but that's where we live. The, the care of the self called therapy. And therefore, the the weightiness of God or the weightiness of the gospel is probably about as weighty as the biggest crisis of the self that we can imagine. Say, depression or cancer. If you want to deal with mental states, it would be maybe a psychotic illness or a a terrible immobilizing depression or a physical illness, a killing cancer that eats away and, and ends your life. And that's the weight of God. If God can do anything for me, if He can fix this thing, or if He can heal this, He is great. And that's as big as He gets. As big as my body, and as big as my brain. And that's small. That's small. Verse 16 points us in another direction about the Gospel and the God of the Gospel. On the day when, according to my gospel, God will judge. Let those words sink in. God is going to judge someday the secrets of your heart through Christ Jesus. Notice, it does not say according to the law or according to some theological puddle glum. It says, according to the glorious gospel, God will judge. Therefore, the weight of the gospel and the weight of the God of the gospel, the news of the gospel, will not rest upon us and will not have affections rising within us in anything like the proportion that they should if we don't think about the gospel in relation to judgment that's coming. Not mainly in relation to how to help me cope with my sickness or my mental states or my family breakdown. If that's the magnitude of our God, He's small and the gospel is small and our emotional responses are not what they ought to be. As big as those things may be consuming to us, they are like dust in the scales compared to the Mount Everest of the coming judgment of God. It is God's judgment, you see that. It's not man's. It's God's judgment. And if He renders a positive judgment for you at the last day, you enter into everlasting and ever increasing joy. And if He, if He renders a negative judgment, you go to hell tormented forever. It takes your breath away. I wanna, I wanna turn around to the choir and thank Grace. Maybe she's in the room, I don't embarrass her, but thank you Grace for your tears in the choir room this morning. For some lost people. As you, as you prayed, I just pleaded with the Lord, God, give me tears. Because of hell. Help me to think about hell. Help me to think about eternity. It's so light. Religion in America is so light, it's not light, it's weighty. Let me give you an example from Bunyan. I'm just saturated with Bunyan. I got a lecture on Bunyan on Tuesday. Every time these pastor's conferences roll around, I'm just oozing with some great saint. And it happens to be Bunyan this year, so he had to get into this sermon. So you get a little Bunyan this morning, and the pastors will get the rest of the Bunyan on Tuesday morning. And all of you can get all of Bunyan if you just want to buy his works and soak in them for a few years. Cause that's how long it would take me to read them all. Listen what Bunyan experienced. Bunyan was tortured with lack of assurance between the years, say, of fifty 1650-55. 50, he was absolutely racked with uncertainties and with soul torments about his final state. And this is what he wrote. And if it was true in his weighty, serious day of Puritan suffering, how much more true in our lightweight day where people get much more excited about the Super Bowl than they do about the Gospel. I saw old people hunting after the things of this life as if they should live here always. And... I found professing Christians much distressed and cast down when they met with outward losses as of husband, wife, or child. Lord, I thought, what ado is there about such little things as these? What seeking after carnal things by some and what grief in others for the loss of them... If they so much labor after and shed so many tears for the things of this present life, how am I to be bemoaned, pitied, and prayed for? My soul is dying. My soul is damned. Were my soul but in a good condition, and were I but sure of it, ah, oh, how rich! Should I esteem myself, though blessed, but with bread and water? I should count those but small afflictions and should bear them as little burdens. He was starting to get it right. He wrote another book called The Greatness of the Soul, based on that text. What shall a man give in exchange for his soul if he gain the whole world and lose it? So I say to you, the doers of the law will be justified. Verse 13. The doers of the law will be, will be justified at the last day, vindicated, declared righteous, acquitted, accepted, welcomed into eternity with joy, the doers of the law will be justified, is weighty beyond any of our capacities to feel it. And so I'd like to pray with you before I go on. Let's pray. Father, now, I've made the case that this is weighty and that we're not fit for it this morning. And now I want to open it and... I just ask that you'd come and rest on this congregation with the weight of glory that it corresponds to the gospel. corresponds to what it means to get ready to meet God. I know there's some here who are on the brink of terror because of their uncertainty about their own soul. And they are the blessed, perhaps. They are the blessed. If they can taste what's at stake, they are blessed. And there are, I fear, dozens, hundreds maybe, for whom the gospel is so cavalier, so trifling, so ho-hum, so taken for granted, they haven't had a heavy thought in five years. Whistling in the dark. While the earth opens beneath their feet. Father, come and help us to listen and to hear. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. What does he mean when he says the doers of the law will be justified? What does he mean? I want to lift up two possible interpretations. The most common one I'm I'm going to reject. And uh, another one I'm going to affirm and then argue for. The one I'm going to reject goes like this. The doers of the law will be justified is a hypothetical statement, which is true of nobody ever. Let me quote John Stott. Now, I picked John Stott because I like him. And I like his commentary, and I disagree with him on this point. I don't pick some quack that nobody would respect. I mention his name in the hopes that you will now say, Whoa, I think I will give this a hearing because this is held by a very esteemed teacher. And I count John Stott to be one of the most feeding expositors in my life as a student. I can remember sitting at Wheaton College reading a little yellow book called Men Made New. That changed my life. And I love John Stott. I've written to him about things I disagree with him about, and so this is not behind his back or anything like that. But he has a good commentary, and I quote from it like this. This is a theoretical... he's, He's commenting on verse 13. This is a theoretical or hypothetical statement, of course, since no human being has ever fully obeyed the law. End quote. Now, I don't think that's true, that it is a hypothetical statement. His main argument is from chapter 3, verse 20. You might want to look at it. In chapter 3, verse 20, we read, By the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. All right, now put the two beside each other and you'll see his argument. It's very powerful. Chapter 13, I mean, chapter 2, verse 13 says, The doers of the law will be justified. And chapter 3, verse 20 says, By the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. So it's plain, right? Right? This cannot be a statement of fact in chapter 2, verse 13. It must be a hypothetical statement, which nobody lives up to, because verse 20 says, no one will be justified by works of the law. There are two really right things about that interpretation before I say why I think it's wrong. One is... It is absolutely true that there are no sinlessly perfect law keepers. No argument. There are no sinless, perfect law keepers. (laughs) The second thing that's right about that interpretation is that everybody in the world today needs to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ crucified and risen in order to be saved. There is no way to be saved without hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen. I like that too. It's true. But is it a hypothetical statement? Is it true of no one? Must it not be true of everyone at the judgment who passes muster? When Paul says... Not the hearers of the law are just before God, but doers of the law will be justified. Does he mean they would be justified if they could, but they can't and so they won't? Or does he mean that doers of the law does not refer to sinlessly perfect law keepers? but refers to people who love the law, hate their sin, depend upon God to live according to the law, and cast themselves on his mercy when they stumble in the law, for the mercy that's held out in the law. Could that be a doer of the law? Well, I answer, yes, it not only could be, I believe that's exactly what Paul means by this verse. So let me give you my paraphrase of verse 13 and then show you why I think it is uh, important and true. Not the hearers of the law are just before God, but those who love the law of God, depend upon His help to live according to the measure of truth that they have, and who cast themselves upon the mercy of God for forgiveness when they stumble in the truth that they have. These and only these will be justified. That's what I think the verse means. Justified at the last day, acquitted at the judgment... Now listen very carefully here, because this is dangerous teaching. What I'm commending to you is a very vulnerable doctrine. Just like all truth is vulnerable. And my teaching this morning is very liable to misunderstanding, just like all the important teachings of Paul were liable to misunderstanding. And he had to combat on all sides against the misunderstandings of his doctrines. And therefore, I am fully aware I will be misunderstood this morning. And I'm saying what I'm saying right now to minimize that as much as I can. Because I've said these things before, and I've heard the way they come back to me, and they're not the way they went out. So if you want to be among the number of the understanding, at least of John, if not Paul, this John, (laughs) the fallible John, if you want to be among the number of those who understand me, and my understanding of Paul, tune in now. First, apart from the preaching of the gospel and the awakening work of the Holy Spirit that leads to faith in Christ, nobody anywhere in the world today is saved. Is that clear? If not agreed with, clear, nobody... Anywhere on planet earth, apart from the awakening work of the Holy Spirit, moving behind and in the preaching of the gospel of Christ, crucified and risen, is saved. That's Paul's point. In these first chapters of Romans that brings him to 3.9 where he says, Therefore Jew and Greek are all under the power of sin and desperately need a revelation of a righteousness that is God's righteousness through faith in Christ because none other will save. Now, suppose someone asked me and someone did ask me, which is why I'm asking me now. Suppose someone asked me. Now, are you saying that theoretically, someone outside the hearing of the gospel, if they are a doer of the law, Allah, verse 13, and the way you just defined it, namely, the love of the law, they depend upon God to live according to it in proportion to the degree that they have it, and cast themselves upon the mercy of God for their stumbling in it, that theoretically they could be saved? My answer is yes. And it never happens. Not once anywhere in the world. And the reason it doesn't happen is because according to chapter 1, verse 18, all men suppress the truth that they have in unrighteousness. No exceptions. They suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Or chapter 2, verses 4 and 5... You are storing up wrath for yourself because of your hard and unrepentant hearts. It isn't that the revelation isn't there. It isn't that the theoretical possibility of casting yourself on the mercy of God is not there. In the hopes that he might save you. It is that nobody overcomes Their hard and unrepentant heart apart from the power of the Holy Spirit who in this age since Jesus Christ has bound himself to the gospel so that he quickens the heart under the preaching of the word of Christ. And there's a reason that he does that. The reason that He does that is because ever since the Incarnation, it is the will of the Father that His Son get all the glory for every salvation and conversion in the world. And therefore, the Holy Spirit does not willy-nilly run around among pagan peoples without the Gospel, quickening and awakening people to see nothing. The Holy Spirit... Is sent into the world to glorify the Son. And He glorifies the Son by binding Himself to the gospel of the Son. And where the gospel is preached, the Holy Spirit moves in power and eyes are open. The suppressing work of the hard and fallen heart is removed and hearts engage with Christ. And Christ gets the glory for every conversion because it is a conversion to Christ and Christ alone. That's why there are no conversions and no salvation outside Christ and the preaching of Christ. Objection now would be this. Somebody is listening and they say, Hmm, sounds just like John Stott to me. You wind up in the same place. Don't you, Pastor John? John? And so what's the big deal? John Stott and most commentators say the doers of the law will be justified is a hypothetical statement that nobody ever fulfills because it refers to perfect law keeping. And nobody but Jesus has ever been perfect. So it's hypothetical and never comes true. You've said that keeping the law or doing the law is not a perfectionistic thing, but rather is a love of the law, a depending on God to help you fulfill the measure of truth about God's requirements, and a throwing of yourself in faith and hope upon the mercy of God for the times that you fail. But you say, apart from the preaching of the gospel, that never happens. So what's the difference? Isn't yours just as hypothetical as his? And the answer is a resounding no, it isn't. I don't think this statement is hypothetical at all. I think it's a statement of simple, straightforward, actual, experienced fact, and where it isn't true, no one has eternal life. And give you four reasons why I believe that. Number one, doers of the law will be justified. Verse 13, chapter 2. The doers of the law will be justified, does not say, by doing works of the law, you will be justified. And therefore, it's not a contradiction of chapter 3, verse 20. It does not establish a causal connection between the doing of the law and the experiencing of acquittal to make it the ground or the means, like faith is, of that acquittal. It doesn't do that. It doesn't say that. It simply says, doers of the law and those who pass muster at the judgment are the same people. That's all it says. And that's what I believe. The only people that will enter life and be acquitted at the last judgment are doers of the law. Whether or not the doing of the law was the ground of their acceptance or functioned, The way faith functions to get right with God is not asserted in verse 13 of chapter 2. And I leave it because I just want to show chapter 3 verse 20 is not a contradiction of this verse. And therefore that argument of John's diet I don't think holds. My second reason for believing that this is a statement of fact, not a hypothetical statement... Is that it doesn't sound like a hypothetical statement. It sounds like a statement of fact. There's an easy way in Greek to make things hypothetical. There's a little word on, alpha nu. Just insert that and you have to translate it then. The doers of the law would be justified if they existed, which they don't. But he didn't write it that way. He wrote it as a simple statement of fact. Doers of the law will be justified. So, if it can be let stand as it is, while cohering with the rest that he says, I'm happy and eager to let it stand. Third argument. These last two are the most important, I think. There are real doers of the law in the New Testament, not just hypothetical ones in theology. I'll give you a few examples. Luke chapter 1, verses 5 and 6. In the days of Herod, king of Judah, there was a priest named Zacharias of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. Now listen to this description that the inspired writer Luke gives of them. They were both righteous in the sight of God walking blamelessly in all the commandments and requirements of the law. Now, it seems to me it's not stretching words at all to say they are doers of the law. If that's not a description of a doer of the law, I can't imagine what would be a description of a doer of the law. They both were righteous in the sight of God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and requirements of God. Now, there are two ways to go with that text. You you can take it out of context, out of other things Luke says and the Bible says, and say, aha, see, the Bible really does teach perfectionism. You can and you should be perfect. It's attainable. They did it. Or, you could take that in the context of what the Old Testament means by righteous, what the Old Testament means by blameless. You read the Psalms. A lot of talk about the righteous and the wicked. But who are the righteous? They're not perfect people. My goodness, they're not perfect people. But they're righteous. Take Psalm 32, for example, which begins, A blessed is the man who sins are forgiven and ends up distinguishing the righteous and the wicked. The righteous, the blameless, are people who love the law, who lean on God to help them keep the law, who hate their sin when they break the law, and who fly to the mercy of God provided in the law when they stumble in the matters of the law. Those are the righteous. Those are the doers of the law, according to the Old Testament and the Rabbi Paul who taught the truth about these things. Here's another example taken from the words of Paul himself. 1 Corinthians 7.19 Circumcision is of is nothing, and uncircumcision is nothing, but what matters is the keeping of the commandments of God. That's Paul. 1 Corinthians 7.19 Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, What counts? Keeping the commandments of God. Is that not a fair paraphrase of being a doer of the law? Keeping the commandments of God? They don't seem far apart to me. Or put alongside it, Galatians 5, 6. In Christ Jesus, there is neither circumcision nor uncircumcision, meaning anything, but faith working through love. So now put those two texts in a column beside each other and let them compare. Here's 1 Corinthians 7, 19. Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything but keeping the commandments. Here's Galatians 5, 6. Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything but faith working through love. And put these two beside each other at the bottom here. And you'll see that the kind of law-keeping that's being spoken of is faith working through love. And we know from Romans 13, 10, love is a fulfillment of the law. Real love is a real fulfillment of the real law. Nothing hypothetical about it. And that is performed by faith. Faith works itself out through love. And so the kind of obedience that is being spoken of in law-keeping in the mind of the apostle is... The obedience of faith, which according to Romans 1.5, is the whole goal of his ministry. It's the whole goal of my ministry. You wonder, why does Piper preach about these things? These are complicated things. I don't hear anybody talking like this. Well, you do. The reason is, the whole book of Romans, chapter 1, verse 5, read it is designed to bring about the obedience of faith among the Gentiles for the sake of the name. That's my passion. I don't want a church filled with carnal, disobedient lawbreakers that look just like the world in the way they live and have this light, feathery confidence that they're going to heaven just because they prayed a prayer one time or signed a card or did something when they were six. What kind of a church is that? That's wicked for a pastor to cultivate such a people. It's heartless, it's cruel. How many people at the judgment will curse their pastors because he didn't tell them when the Lord says to them, why do you call me Lord, Lord? Depart from me, I never knew you, you workers of iniquity. Workers of iniquity, we didn't think it mattered that you worked iniquity, all you had to do was believe. And the pastors will be cursed. One other text from Paul, chapter 8 verse 3 of Romans. What the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh as an offering for sin. God condemned sin in the flesh say, now why did He do that? Why did He send Jesus? Why did He put His Son to death? Why did He make atonement for sin? Verse 4, so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Not just for us. In us who walk. It's a walking issue here. Who walk according to the... Spirit and not according to the flesh. Christ died for our sins to provide a perfect alien righteousness for us which will bring us through the judgment sinners though we be so that we might fulfill the law in our walk. And if we don't, we didn't trust him. That's argument number three. Here's the last argument. I'm trying to defend that the phrase doers of the law in Romans 2.13 is a simple statement of fact. They are the ones who will get eternal life. They are the ones who will be vindicated and acquitted at the last judgment. Here's my last argument. I think it's probably the most important. The flow of thought from verse 6 to the end of the paragraphs in verse 16 demands it, or seems to me at least, to demand it. Let me just sketch what I mean. Verse 13, not the hearers of the law, but the doers will be justified is an argument for the impartiality of God in verse 11. You all see that. He's arguing and defending the impartiality of God in verse 11. Well, why did he even bring up the impartiality of God? He brought it up as the ground for the judgment according to works in verses 6 to 10. Every man will be rendered according to his deeds, verse 6. To those who by patience in doing good, they will get eternal life. And to those who through vain glory do evil, they will suffer wrath and fury. For God is a God who is impartial, for it is not the hearers, but the doers that are justified. Now, you see the flow. You can't take the doers of the law and make it radically different from the doing of good in verse 7. And have the argument hang together. It all flows together. If you just trace it a piece at a time, he says... God will render to every man according to his deeds. Not on the basis of his deeds as though he can earn anything from God. But there will be an accord between the deed and the life and the acquittal. And then he gives the examples. The positive in 7 and 10. The negative in 8 and 9. Those who persevere in good deeds will get eternal life. Because God's impartial. This will be true for Jew and Gentile. Because it is not the hearers but the doers. Who will be justified. It's exactly the same teaching as 2-7. We spent three weeks on 2-7. Trying to show in the New Testament context. How the doctrine of justification by faith is not contradicted. By saying that the evidence of that faith must be a transformed life of doing right. And so I don't think verse 13 means anything different than verse 7. Verse 7 is the exposition of verse 13. To persevere in the doing of the law or the doing of good and be awarded eternal life is the same as to do the law and be awarded acquittal or justification at the last day. Those are my four arguments. So I close with this exhortation. Would you please... Would you please ponder this as you leave? That there's a judgment coming. Go back to where I started. There's a judgment coming. Everybody in the balcony, everybody in the balcony are going to be judged. You will stand alone face to face before Almighty God and be called to account, called to account for your life. That's big. Everybody on this floor, underneath us, the nurseries, everybody will be called to account for your life. And the glorious good news is that Christ came into the world to save sinners. And he died. And he lived. He lived for you. With perfect obedience on your behalf. He died for you to cover all your sins. He was raised for you to vindicate that atonement. He reigns for you at the right hand of God. He intercedes for you with the Father right now. He's coming again for you. He puts His Spirit within you to keep His new covenant promises to hold you and preserve you. And He, your advocate, will be your judge, according to verse 16. And that's good news. Picture the courtroom. Here He is, your defense attorney. Who moves behind the bench to become your judge, then moves out to make the case, then moves back behind the bench to render judgment. But, believing that, the faith that lays hold on that, and rests in that, and gets assurance from that, and does not produce hope, The faith that tries to lay hold on that and does not produce love, the faith that lays hold on that and does not produce obedience is no faith. James calls it dead faith. Paul calls it if you believed in vain. And therefore I plead with you, this is my closing plea, I plead with you, embrace the whole Christ. Embrace the forgiving Christ and embrace the empowering Christ. Conversion is that big. Not many Americans know it. It's that big. It's that heavy. And if it causes struggles in your life, maybe you will start reading the Bible the way it was meant to be read. Let's pray. Oh God in heaven, I pray for the conversion of sinners in this room right now as the gospel of Christ's glorious work on the cross is lifted up here. That Christ died for sinners, to make an atonement for all of our failures. And without Him, we would have no hope whatsoever. And I pray that you would draw people to Christ. And Lord, I pray for believers who have such a light, wispy, feather-like feel for the gospel, that it would become a glorious weighty thing and that the supernatural dimension of conversion by the Holy Spirit through the gospel will become a, a great and glorious thing don't you stand for the benediction and now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead The great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good, that you may do his will, working in you that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the dominion forever and ever. And all the people said, Amen. You're dismissed.